This morning's passage is from Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 14. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. This is the word of the Lord. We're well into this uh, series uh, that we're calling the hard sayings of Jesus. And we're saying that they're the hard sayings of Jesus because, you know, on one hand, they're very difficult to hear. We, it's hard for us to sometimes understand some of the things that Jesus says as we've grown up. And we've kind of just been immune or numb to some of these things. But also, uh, they're the hard sayings because they're like candy, like hard candy, like rock candy. You put it in your mouth. In order for you to savor the richness and the flavor of these things, you have to suck on it a while. You have to chew on things for a while, dwell on things for a while, let it, let it sink in. And that's what we're going to do with these sayings. Each week, we're just going through another one of those hard sayings of Jesus. And this one, this passage, it, gets really, it really gets to the question, how do you measure worth? How do you measure greatness? And we're going to get right into this, okay? Um, I used to think that these passages, these chunks of verses were separate but it's really one thing, it's really one passage. Uh, the first part, you have three parts to this text. The first and the third part are absolutely connected and gives us, it kind of sandwiched the second part. And that's why we know that the whole passage is intentional. And it was written as one connected passage. So we're going to see this. There's three points here today. Verses 1 to 5 tells us what greatness is. Verses 6 to 10 tells us what it looks like. And then verses, well, the whole passage really, but the last section there teaches us how to get it. What greatness is, what does it really look like in the kingdom of God, and how do you get it? Okay, first, what it is. Here's what's happening. The the disciples, they're like Jesus' cabinet. They're like the west wing, okay, for Jesus. And they one time, one day they come to him and they say, you know, who is the greatest in the kingdom of God? Who is the greatest? They knew that all kingdoms had structure. They knew that all kingdoms have a hierarchy. They know that all societies, all people groups, no matter where you've come from, they all have a top group of people, a bottom group of people, and a middle class. And they're wondering who will then be the greatest in your kingdom? Who will have the top positions? Uh, Who's going to have the most recognition in this kingdom that you are bringing to us? It's not an abstract question. They're not asking some academic trick question. Okay? They're not asking Jesus to teach them about the concept, his philosophy on greatness. They're literally asking, which one of them, among them, will be at the top? The reason why we know that is that in the Gospel according to Mark, it's a par- there's a parallel passage, in chapter 9, it says that the disciples were arguing with each other. 
They were arguing with each other as to which one of them would be at the top. And finally, they were get, it gets kind of quiet because Jesus asks them, what are you guys discussing? And it says they were silent. They grew very quiet. They were arguing. And they go to him and they ask, you know, which one of us are going to be at the top? Which one of us will be there? It's very, very telling. Very telling. And what it tells us is this. In the world... The ordinary way that we all view greatness, the way that we conceive greatness is this. You have to fight for it. You have to struggle for it. You have to earn it. You have to take it. You have to win. You have to achieve it. It's arrived by trying hard, by working hard through strife. We live in a capitalistic community, a capitalistic country. In capitalism, greatness is earned through what? Through competition, through one group of people breaking and beating another group of people. It's through competition. It's through strife. It's through a structured form of violence, right? Survival of the fittest. But if you look at a communistic country, greatness is earned through what? Through class struggle. You have the Marxian-Leninist dialectic. The dialectic teaches us that there is a thesis and an antithesis, and that's what makes societies work, through that struggle of classes. In other words, what Marx and Lenin, what they're saying is that it's earned through competition, through man against man, through struggle, a structured form of violence. So whether you come from the East or the West, whether in Eastern society or whether you're from a Western society, whether you're from a capitalistic society or a communistic society, greatness in the world is defined by struggle, it's defined by achieving, by, uh, by strife. The ordinary way that we achieve greatness today creates strife on the outside, outside of ourselves. We're constantly at war. But it also creates strife on the inside as a result. Why were these disciples arguing with each other? Why were they fighting with each other? They're arguing... Think about why any of you argue with anybody close to you. You're troubled by something that each other is saying. In the Old Testament, you have the book of Daniel. And it's a great case study about greatness. Because you have Nebuchadnezzar, and he's got these dreams. Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful man in the world at that time, to date. He was the emperor of the Babylonian Empire, which was the most powerful empire today. One of the most powerful empires of all time. And he's at the height of his power in the book of Daniel. In other words, no one could take over him. No one could stop him. No one could top him. He had ultimate, ultimate job security. He had ultimate economic financial security in his life. In fact, he's so much at the top that thousands of years later, we're still studying and we're still talking and writing about Nebuchadnezzar. But he's got these dreams. He's got these nightmares. His second dream was a dream of this tree. And it grew to the heights of the heavens, it said. But it wasn't just a dream. It was a nightmare. Somebody came and was chopping the tree down, and the tree fell. And he's troubled by this dream because deep inside he knows he is that tree. That's his nightmare, that one day, no matter how high he goes, somebody or something will bring him down, that he'll lose it all. And he's troubled in his sleep. It keeps him up all night. And it says, actually, in the book of Daniel... It says that he was afraid after the dream. What does that teach us? It teaches us 
that when we achieve greatness in a worldly way, which is through strife, through struggle, through conquering, we're always looking over our shoulder. It's never going to be enough to have what you have right now. You're always going to be insecure. You always need more. You know why? Because you're that tree. And you think that by continuing to go higher, you cannot fall. So we're constantly insecure. We're always losing sleep. We're always troubled. We're always in anxiety. We're always afraid. Let me ask you something. What keeps you up at night? What is your biggest nightmare? Because that, in your mind, is your ticket to greatness. That is what defines you. If I just maintain this thing, that's what's going to make me great. The disciples here, they're arguing. And finally, they come to Jesus. They come to Jesus, and they ask Jesus, you know, who's going to be the greatest? And Jesus' answer is so startling. It's so radical. It completely turns their world upside down. You know, it's so alternative. He says, whoever humbles himself will be the greatest. Whoever humbles himself will be the greatest. In other words, what he's saying is, true greatness is the person who doesn't go to the heavens on his own, but goes actually to the lowest position. In other books of the Bible that reference this episode, this narrative, he says the first will be last. And then he brings out this child. And he says true greatness is like this, is like this child. He doesn't say it is this child. He doesn't say we have to become children. He says you have to become like a child. He's using a simile. He's using an analogy. He says children have a total lack or grasp of social status. They have no idea about the concept, what it really means to have status or power or importance in life. They don't have, any, they don't have the same sense of dignity you know, that other human beings have, other adults have. They're not willing to stoop to lows to get what they want. You know, the way adults are willing to stoop in some ways. Jesus is saying that you have to be willing, you must be willing to be the servant of everyone, of all. To be truly great is to be willing to take the lowest place. That's what greatness is. At least that's what he says it is. Now, the second point then is what does it look like? What does it look like in the kingdom? And verses 6 to 10, particularly verse 6 we see as, a, as kind of like the anchor point here, teaches us what it looks like. When a person receives greatness, it's going to shape you on the outside, completely shape you on the outside, and it's going to shape you on the inside. If you notice, Jesus is not just talking about receiving a child, you know, like, like you just have to love children. That's not what he's saying. Clearly, that's not what he's saying. Later on in verse 6, he says, you have to receive, you have to welcome the little ones. You think he's talking about children again. You think he's saying, well, he must be talking about children, you know, because he, before he brought out a child and he says, you have to receive, you have to welcome these, chi- these children, um, he must be talking about children again. Verse 10, later on, he says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. He brought out a child, right? But that's not what he's saying, uh, it's not quite what he's saying. In the Greek, that phrase, little ones, is different from the word child, and it's different in a way in terms of how he's referring, his, his point of reference. He's basically saying, he's looking at a child, but he's saying you have to welcome the little ones, people who are like this child, anyone who is weak, anyone who is poor, anyone who is completely helpless or powerless, if you want to be great, Anyone who welcomes the weak, anyone who welcomes the poor, 
Anyone who welcomes whoever's at the bottom of the social ladder, the bottom of the economic or the educational ladder, Jesus is saying, I want to remind you, if you say you welcome me into your life, if I'm at the center of your life, then your attitude to people will be such that you don't look down on the poor. You don't look down on the weak. You don't look down at people who've been marginalized. You don't look down at people who have little power, who have no social capital, who have no financial capital for matter, who have no influence. You will not look down on these people. He brings a child, and he says, I want you to welcome this child. Why does he do that? Why does he do that? You know, children, they have no sense of gratitude. They have no understanding of this concept of gratitude. They have no idea, parents, you know, they have no idea that they just ruined your life. They just changed and shaped your life and basically just ruined it. Everything, all your hopes and dreams, you know, what you, what you thought your life was, they just turned it upside down. You know, um, you teach them, you take them to an amusement park. They love the amusement park. You take them there, and they're having a great time, and you, you, know, you buy them ice cream, and you say, now, what do you say? And the children say, thank you. But you know, three seconds later, they're crying, and they're wailing, and they're moaning because you, they, you, know, you didn't let them do something that they wanted to do at the amusement park. That's all children are. You teach them to say thank you, they say thank you because they're about to get something from you, and then they just go off, and they, you know, what have you done for me lately? That's basically what they're saying, right? That's how they are. But the second thing is that children have no power. They are helpless. They have no money. They have no status. They don't get you anything, you know. They don't get you anywhere. If anything, they're going to slow you down many times. They're cute. They smile. You know, they're adorable. But is it worth all the sacrifice? No. They're not really worth, that's not what's worth the sacrifice. Jesus, you know, he's not talking in a, in a child-centric culture in that day. It was not a child-centric culture. Children had no rights. You know, today, we're always encouraging our children, right? Teachers are afraid to say the wrong thing because they, will, they could lose their jobs today in our progressive education, you know, in a system if they don't encourage the child. Today, in our society today, even the smallest things are celebrated. You know, um, you look at a child and say, look, he's crawling. He's just starting to crawl, even though he's crawling backwards, right? He says, he's crawling, right? We say, oh, he's speaking, even though he's like, da, da, da. Oh, he's speaking. We kind of repeat him, and, and that's what we do, right? That's what we do as adults. We would never do that to adults. When's the last time you celebrated a little gain for an adult? Oh, look, he just understood his first SAT word, you know, or look, you know, he just, he just finished calculus. Isn't that cute? Or, or look, you know, he just passed his molecular biology exam. You know, we never celebrate the little wins in adults. We never do that. Jesus, is, he doesn't live in a child-centered culture. Children were virtually ignored in his day. They were pushed aside until they grew up. That's how we treated our children back then, right? And yet he says, you welcome me. If you welcome me, one of the marks of greatness is that you will meet these people that you've ignored, that you've shunned, and you will receive them. You will welcome them. That's what he says. You know how we are? This is how we are in life. You know, every one of us is like this in some way, shape, or form. You know how we are? We have this craving. We say, you know, I need to be known, I need to be loved. I need to be welcomed. I need to be, to be recognized. I need to be great. That's basically what we're saying. 
Every one of us here has that need, we feel, to be loved, to be recognized, to be honored, to be worthy, to feel worthy. You know what our bad dreams are? Our bad dreams revolve around that need. That's the reason why we try to scale the heights. That's the reason why we do that. Every one of us here has that desperate need. It is very desperate. It is an apocalyptic need to feel loved and embraced, to feel a sense of worth. That's the reason why we do. We're always pursuing that thing that's going to make us great. And so naturally, when we walk into a room, you know what you see? Even when you walk into a room like this, you know what you look at? You look at the people who are going to get you places. You're going to walk into a room, and you're going to gravitate towards people who have social status, people who are going to enhance your potential, people who are going to give you a sense of worth. That's why we gravitate to better-looking people, to prettier people. That's why we gravitate towards people who are more athletic. That's why we gravitate towards people who are just more handsome. You know? That's why we gravitate to people who have good pedigrees, who came from great schools, who have great jobs, great salaries, who have great degrees and titles, and who are absolutely more popular than we are. That's why we gravitate towards people like that. The ignored people, they drain us, don't they? They drain us. They drain us emotionally. They drain us Uh, and they're a burden to us. Now, what if Jesus assessed people like that? What if that was Jesus' measure of assessing people? He would have saved himself a trip to earth. He would have saved himself all of his suffering because no one is worth that. Not a single person. And yet he didn't do that. And by not, by choosing to come to earth, what he's saying is, you have absolute intrinsic value in my life. By just his very coming to earth, he's saying, I'm, you have absolute value in my life. That's what he's saying. In the kingdom. Today, we live in a fragmented society. We live in a fragmented world, actually. You know, what, I, what do I mean by that? We, it means that, you know, today, pe- people, you know, um, when they gain a certain amount of wealth, when they gain a certain amount of power, gain a certain amount of influence, they feel, they think that they deserved it. You know, here's what you say to yourself. I worked really hard for this. You know, I worked really, really hard. I studied really, really hard. I have a right to be where I am. That's what we say. Some of us haven't studied very hard, so you have to work even harder, you feel like. You work down to the bone. And you say, I finally got to a certain place where I feel like I need to be. I worked hard for this. I deserve it because I worked for it. So it's hard for us to just give. To anybody, you know, anybody who's in need. If you don't see where you are right now as a gift, no matter where you are, then you're always going to look at other people as undeserving and you as, you know, deserving. You're going to say, you know, I don't owe you a single dime. I don't owe you anything. I don't owe you my time. I don't owe you any love. I don't owe you anything. You don't deserve I worked for where you, I am. You didn't work hard enough. You didn't study hard enough. You didn't, you don't deserve this. Only people who see what, where they are and what they have as a gift from God will actually be able to um, look at other people, look at the little ones, and actually desire to give. They're the only ones. Every society you know, needs people at the top looking at people who are down low, the little ones, and give to them. Every society needs that. But we live in a growing, more increasingly fragmented society where less and less people desire to do that. You know, the 21st century is an amazing century 
because we see more people coming into the United States as missionaries to the United States than any other time in America's history. And you know who they're targeting? They're targeting the wealthy. They're targeting the people with power and influence. That means that the 21st century has potential to be an amazing century for the gospel because people at the top, what will happen if people at the top are transformed? What would it do for the little ones? It's an amazing century. Every culture needs that. Every culture needs to deal with the tendency of the natural heart to take credit for what we have. To rather, rather to see it as a gift. Because if you take credit for what you have, it's going to turn you away from the little ones. Greatness, Jesus says, is he who first takes care of the little ones. It's going to cost you. You know, verses 6 to 10, it says it could cost you your hand, it could cost you your foot, it could cost you your eye, meaning it could cost you the things that actually took you there. It's going to cost you the things that got you there sometimes. It's going to slow you down. If you lose a foot, you're going to walk slower. If you lose a hand, you're going to work slower. If you lose an eye, you're going to do things slower. It's going to slow you down. It may actually decrease your potential by loving little ones. It may actually, you know, when we love our children, that's easy to do because sometimes they help us get there in a way to achieve our view or sense of greatness. It's a sacrifice, but it's also a part of you. To sacrifice for somebody who is not a part of you organically. He says that it's a, it takes a supernatural power to do that because you're lowering your potential in some ways. You're lowering your status. You're becoming. You lose a hand, you lose a foot, you lose an eye, you're becoming a social invalid. That's what's happening. You know, when I was uh, in seventh grade, I think it starts sometime around sixth grade or seventh grade, um, everybody, when they enter into sixth grade or seventh grade, you know, for those of you who have children who may be entering sixth grade or seventh grade, be careful of this. They all have a sense, that's when they start to come to an awareness of this concept of social capital. They realize that there are popular people and less popular people. You know, when you're a kid, you can let bygones be bygones over time. It's the kid who has the coolest toy or something like that. But as you get older, you have this concept of capital, social capital. And you know this because if you're in the popular side, it's very, very difficult to even have lunch with somebody who's not on the popular side. We all understand this, right? We've all experienced or seen this, right? And the reason why is because when you're on the unpopular side, you're kind of a social invalid. You're kind of a social leper, we say. That, you know, invalidness transfers. The more you hang out with people who are lower on the social, uh, who have lower, on the lower ranks of the social ladder, that stench, that sickness, that illness starts to transfer over to you. You start to lose friends. You start to lose power. You start to lose, in, uh, you know, influence. That's what happens. It doesn't change from sixth grade and on, I'm sure a lot earlier. That concept continues on. You just gain more wealth and power and status along the way. What would it take for us to love the little ones? Jesus says, it's not natural. Something supernatural has to happen. The mark of greatness is such that we would love the little ones, he says. Look at the context here in this text. You know, how is it if one of you causes somebody to sin, one of these little ones to sin, what is he talking about? What's the temptation there? Mainly what he's saying is if you look at the context, 
you know, if you look at the sandwich, he's talking about lowering yourself in the first section. He's talking about lowering yourself in some ways in the third section. Loving the little ones in the first section. Loving the little ones in the third section. So in this second section, verses 6 to 10, if one of you causes even one of these little ones to sin, he's talking about by not lowering yourself, when you look down on them, one of the best ways to throw somebody into sin, to tempt them to sin is what? To make them doubt who they are. I have two very, very quick illustrations here. And, and they're both in the same chapter, so it works great. In Luke chapter 18, you have two stories. In the first story, you have these two people who are praying. The Pharisee is standing and he's praying before God. The other person is a tax collector and he's kind of down low and he's praying. He's, very, very, he's at a distance from the Pharisee. The Pharisee is comparing himself even with the tax collector. He says, I'm so thankful that I have all these things that I have. And especially because I'm not like that guy over there. That's the tendency of the natural heart. We don't want to admit it, but clearly, every single time we ignore the little ones, that's what we're saying, because they don't deserve it. They don't deserve it, and I do deserve what I have. The Pharisee is standing, it says, the text says, before God, and he looks up to heaven. And he's thankful, but really what he's thankful for, you should see the amount of times that he uses the word me in that text. But the other person, the tax collector, is down low and he's beating his breast. He won't even look. Because tax collectors are your modern-day drug dealers, actually. I wish I could unpack that and explain that to you. If you have questions about it, we can talk about it. But they were treated like modern-day drug dealers. And he's down low. And he really just utters four or five words in Greek. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's basically what he says. He says, I tell you, that man is the one that walks away justified. Justified. That sinner is the one that's justified. That's what he says. That man is looking at this Pharisee and he says, I'm not like him. I'm I'm nothing like him. Will you just have mercy on me? That guy, he's good. He's great. He lives away. And look, he's even looking down on me. So surely you must look down on me. Will you just have mercy? That's the tax collector. He tells another story in the same chapter about a rich young ruler. That rich young ruler passage is all over the Gospels, but it's also in Luke chapter 18. And immediately following that first parable, he talks about this rich young ruler. This rich young ruler is so good and so wealthy and is so righteous that when he walks away because Jesus tells him, you know, I want you to give up everything you have, sell it to the poor, and then follow me, he can't do it. And he walks away. He says he grieves and he walks away. The, the, the disciples, they don't look at them and say, oh, I can't stand that guy, he's so arrogant. They don't say that. When Jesus says it's easy for a camel to go through an Ivan needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, the disciples don't say, thank God I'm not rich. That's not what they say. They look at him walking away and they say, well, that guy can't go to heaven <laughs> because he's so good. He's so righteous. Then who gets into heaven? That's what they ask. He says, then who, they say, then who can be saved? Those two stories, greatness, greatness. Jesus is overturning their concept of greatness. You know, when we're around people and we make them doubt who they are because of who we are or because of who you think we are, he says, you are tempting your brother to sin. The ultimate sin, the unbelief that comes with that. 
That's what he's saying. He says, if, if you see anything in you causing yourself to sin, whether it's your eye or your hand or your foot, he says, cut it off. Why does he use such strong language? He says, cut it off. That's very, very harsh. He's talking about repentance. He's talking about repentance. He says, he says, if you see anything in your life causing somebody else to move away from the gospel because of your pride, he says, you've got to distance yourself from that. Stop making excuses. Stop trying to defend yourself. Stop looking the other way. Care for these little ones. Cut, distance yourself from those things. Cut it off. In other words, the mark of... Greatness is humility. It shows you who you're willing to deal with. You know, the little ones, you're going to care for them. That's the outside. But it also deals with the inside, how you deal with yourself. You become quicker to take responsibility for things. You become quicker to take responsibility for your wrongs, for your flaws, for your mistakes. If you can't do that, then you can't admit sin. You can't admit what's wrong with you. Greatness, the mark of greatness is repentance. Repentance, in fact, leads to greatness. You know, um, there's another case study here. You have Peter. And Peter had betrayed Jesus three times. He promised he wouldn't do that. He said, if anybody, you know, these guys, the other, the other 11, they might betray you. But I'm not going to betray you. you know, I will fight for you, with you, by your side. That's basically what Peter says. And Jesus predicts that Peter will deny him three times. And of course, before the rooster crows, as, this, as the narrative goes, Peter denies Jesus, betrays Jesus. He says, I don't even know him. That's what he says. He's cowardly. In the moment uh, where Jesus is without any friends, Peter cowers. And he's guilty. And after the resurrection... You know, without going into this text in detail, Jesus reinstates Peter. And Jesus kind of sets everything up for Peter to kind of bring him closer to him, reminds him, sets up the stage so that all the memories of his betrayal come back to him. And where Peter could be so ridden in guilt, Jesus asks him three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter responds, yes, yes, yes. You know, and each time Jesus says, feed my lambs. And the Greek word for Feed there, you know, is I want you to pastor my lambs. And that's why it's not a surprise that Peter's books of the Bible, the ones that he wrote, the epistles written by Peter, are the most pastoral. They help you deal with suffering. They're the most pastoral, you know, in the New Testament. And, you know, what's he saying here? What he's telling Peter, you know, what is it that transformed Peter? He tells Peter, because your failure was the worst, and you came to me, I'm drawing you close, and you came to me, if you repent, you can be great. You can be the greatest, in fact. I will take your fear, and I will take your sinfulness, and I will take your guilt, and I have absorbed it into myself, and I will make you great. Just come to me. That's Jesus to Peter. Now, nothing prepares you for greatness then and to take your weaknesses, to take your failures, and to plunge it into the grace of God. That's basically what Jesus is calling us to do. He's saying, take your failure. I want you to give it to me. 
I want you to surrender it to me. And I want you to experience God's grace. Every single time you fail, I want you to take that, take it to the cross and re-experience again what I've done for you. And I want you to live a lifestyle of that. Martin Luther, the great Martin Luther says, all of life, this is his conclusion, all of life is repentance. Experiencing repentance and experiencing God's grace again. It's going to make you wiser. It's going to make you more tender. It's going to make you more joyful. It's going to make you more secure. It's going to make you uh, more gentle. It's going to make you more sympathetic to other people. It's going to make you a loving person, a more gracious person, a leader. The mark of greatness, it's marked by your ease in your ability to repent, to admit failure. Repentance is admitting failure and then taking that failure, plunging it into the grace of God. That's what creates joy because you realize it's more than just, wow, Jesus even forgave me for that too. But it's saying, you know what? That's all I need. That's all I need because the reason why I sinned was I was searching for other things. I was captivated by other things. I've wandered away from the truth of the gospel and now in my repentance, I'm coming back. That's what it is. That's why we are, are willing to let go of sins. That's why we, it's not just the sin, but the guilt of the sin, the suffering of the sin, the pain of the sin, the pollution of the sin, the consequences of the sin. We can let it go. That's what it is. How do you get it? So far, we've talked about what it is. We talked about what it looks like on the outside. You love the little ones. It talks about, we talked about what it looks like on the inside, how it heals us how we are able to plunge our failures into the grace of God and how that makes us more joyful and more loving leaders. How do you get it? How does it come to you? The first thing is in verse 3. He says, unless you become, you go all the way to the beginning, unless you become like children, you know, he says, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Unless you turn, it says actually in your text, unless you turn and become like children, unless you convert unless you walk away from your natural way of viewing greatness and convert and now look at my way of viewing greatness and become like a child, you will never enter the kingdom of God. To become a Christian, to be saved, you must become like a child. It's the same theme uh, earlier in the text, early in the book of Matthew in chapter 5. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will inherit the kingdom of God. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit is to be humble. What do I mean by being poor in spirit? Here's how anyone who has not been changed by God's love approaches God. Be, pay very careful attention to this. Here's how anyone who has not been changed by the gospel approaches God. I wrote it out. kind of looks like this. You know, I failed. I made mistakes because I'm not perfect. None of us here are perfect. And I'm probably less perfect than a lot of people here. I've, I've made lots of mistakes, and I have tons of regret. But, come on, I have a little bit of spiritual money in the bank. And it's not just because I grew up in the church. I serve. I try to live a very, very good life. I strive. I struggle. I struggle with my sin, and I repent, I confess, and, and um, I really want to do good in my life. I want to serve people. I'm good to my family. I'm a hardworking father. Um, I try to live a good life. This type of person is basically saying this. I'm going to retranslate what they've said. I am coming to God 
more because I need to get better. You know, I've built up some sort of spiritual capital in my life. I've done, come on, I get it. Jesus died for me, you know, so, and I'm, I'm working now along that, you know. Um, I need God to supplement me. I need him to grant me things. For instance, I need wisdom because I lack wisdom. That's why I made all these mistakes. I need wisdom. So God, will you give me wisdom? You know, but uh, I also need ability. You know, I need more ability in my life. I need to learn things. I need to grow, you know. Um, other pastors in my past, they didn't help me to grow. But they don't realize they need grace. That none of those things amount to anything. In fact, Paul uses the word rubbish. And the rubbish, he's, the word that he's referring to in the Greek is not trash. It's a lot worse than trash. You ever clean your child's diaper? That's what he's talking about. He says all those things, your standing, the influence that you have over people, I try to walk and lead people. I've built some sort of spiritual capital in my life. But I'm not totally helpless. I just need a little bit of help to get there. Maybe some coaching. Maybe some better examples. In fact, that's your fault. You need to give me some examples. That's what we do. Only when the Spirit takes hold, only when the Spirit takes hold of you and you realize, because a transformed person sounds like this, you know, I've done good things and I've done some bad things. In fact, a lot of the good things I've done confuse me to make me believe that that's enough. The good things actually sometimes hurt me in my approach to God. I've done some good things, I've done some bad things, yes, but the good things I did, I did to feel better about myself. That's really why I did those good things. It's to look better, but it goes beyond just looking better. I don't care what these people think. It's, I want to feel better about myself. I know deep inside that I did good. I did the right thing when I could have done the wrong thing. You know, and, and that's what's killing me because I did it to have power over other people to look better in front of other people, to sometimes have power over God because if I do good things, God owes me. He owes me. Only by the Spirit, I need God by grace because I realized I never, ever rose. I'm still dead. A dead person, that's why they call it the new birth, a dead person cannot revive himself. He says, I have to call you by name. I have to wake you up. I need, you need to rise again. That's what he says. Only when the Spirit takes hold. You will never be able to love the little ones until you first come to the gospel. Otherwise, it's just going to be work, another thing that you add as a supplement. You understand what I'm saying here? You can't be saved by your good works. That's what you realize, that all the good works have actually hurt me sometimes, not by my achievements, not by my efforts, not only what I've learned is that salvation is received by grace alone. It's Jonah in the fish. This prophet of God who did all these good things for God, swallowed up by the fish, and he's down at the lowest point of his life. He's literally at the depths. And he says, it's the last line of his prayer, salvation is of the Lord. That's when you start to get it. The second thing we need to see You know, that's what it means to turn and become like a child. The second thing we need to see is who really is the greatest. If the first thing is to become humble, 
to recognize how much you need grace, that you are utterly helpless like a child. The second thing is to realize then who is the great one because we have sought many great ones here, the wrong great ones. Who's the greatest? Who is it? It's the one who had come the lowest, the lowest of them all, Jesus, God. In Jesus, God didn't just become like a child. He became a baby. He was born in a manger. He became a child. And later on in the Gospels, he starts teaching. He starts teaching about sheep. John chapter 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. And mainly what he's saying is God is the good shepherd. You know, 100 sheep, 99 of them are great. One of them goes off. He is willing to leave the 99 who think they're okay and go after the one who is completely lost. That is a good shepherd, he says. And in this passage, he says, even if one sheep is lost, even if he's wandering around in the darkness, I will go after him. How did God go after us? Every one of us here has a story, a story of how we came to approach God. Now, some of the stories are not fully written. The chapters are still unraveling as we speak. But every one of us has a story. And here, how did God go after us rather than us going after God? How did God go after us? We are the lost sheep. How did God go after us? Jesus is the only shepherd who, as he goes after us, the way he came after us, the only way he could release us, save us, is what? He had to become the sheep. He had to become the sheep. You know, in ancient Jewish uh, history, you know, every year they celebrated, they observed um, this time of atonement, this day of atonement, Yom Kippur. It's coming up, actually. And during this period, you know, what we have here is, um, you know, you have the high priest who performs two activities. The first duty, well, one of the duties is he takes a sheep, a goat, okay, and uh, he places all the sins of the people on this goat, you know, and he casts them off. It's called the scapegoat. That's the one that will be blamed. It's left to wander off. Jesus says, you know, there are sheep out there that are wandering off. I, I'm not just going to let them go. I'm not going to cast them off and leave them for dead. I'm going to go after them. That's what he says. The second thing, you know, because they, that sheep takes on, that goat takes on the sins of the world. Every year, the scapegoat. But the high priest also enters the temple, the, holy, the most holy place in the temple once a year where God's presence dwells. He basically slaughters a bull, he slaughters a lamb, a perfect lamb, and spills the blood because that will make atonement for our sins. And that's the reason why. So, you know, here's the shepherd. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd who becomes the lamb. What does that mean? John the Baptist, when he first sees Jesus, his first glimpse of Jesus You know what he says? Behold. Fix your eyes. That's what he means. I'm fixated on, he says, behold the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. He is the the Lamb that will be slain. He is the scapegoat. He will take away the sins of the world. That's 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 what John the Baptist says about Jesus. And how does he become that? How does he become this sheep? On the cross... Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what he says. Why have you forsaken me? And what he means, what he's saying is, this is why I became a child. It points to the ultimate day of my weakness, the cross. This is why I became a sheep, a lamb, 
The perfect lamb. Why I have to live the perfect life. Why? Because it points to the ultimate day where I will be sacrificed. The cross. The infinite became weak. The shepherd became the lamb. On the cross, Jesus says, I have been forsaken. What he means is, I'm that lost sheep. I've become the lost sheep. Except no one's going to come after me. They've abandoned me. No one's going to chase and look for me. They've left me for dead. No one's going to go after me. And I'm struggling. And I'm in strife. And I'm experiencing violence. That's what he's saying. I've been declared lost status. I'm here and I'm struggling. I've been lifted up. Not in greatness, but in weakness. Not in kingliness, but in sacrifice. And I have no God. My God has abandoned me. I've become the little one. And everyone, including God himself, has turned his face from me. Only if you see this, you know, and only if you see this can you say, even though this person is of little value to me, even if this person is of little worth to me, I will turn my face towards him. Even though he means nothing and has done nothing for me, so what? I will not ignore him. I will start to care for him. Because that is what Christ, that is a representation of me. What Christ has done for me. When you truly give yourself to Christ, you know what that means? You become a child of the king. You're a child of the king. You can love the little ones as a prince or as a princess. It's our dream in life, right? When you're a kid, you want to be a prince. You want to be a princess. You're affirmed to the skies because you have God's love. Only if you see that can you love the little ones. You know why? Because you realize God loves you. You didn't earn that. You didn't earn that status. God has chosen to love you, and he went after you. We can go after the little ones ourselves. You know, the gospel makes you bold. We always say the gospel makes you bold and humble. You know why the gospel makes you bold and humble? Here's the reason why. The gospel makes you bold because the king loves you. You're a child of God. You have every reason to be affirmed. And if you don't feel affirmed, that means you've lost your kingliness. You have to go back to the gospel and recognize and remember what Jesus paid, the price he paid so that you could become his child. But it's also going to make you humble. You know why? Because you didn't earn it. You've done nothing to earn it. You've done nothing to earn it. And because you were lost, that's what's going to make you humble. That's, why, that's what's going to make you get away, get rid of your ego. That's what's going to make you say, you know what? It's the gospel and the gospel alone. That's what is my affirmation. That's what is my validation. That's why I serve the gospel. That's why I love the gospel. You know, children, we've said a lot of negative things about children. They're helpless. You know, we said a lot, you know, they're, they're ungrateful. But they so much just expect love. They don't wake up wondering, you know, is my dad going to love me this morning? That's not what they do. They just run to the father. They just run to you. They trust inherently. They don't doubt. We have to become like children. No matter what, let that be your affirmation. Let that be your boldness. And let that drive then everything else that you do outside of you. Let it shape you on the inside so you can be shaped on the outside. Will you do that this week? Let's pray.